I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Delano Squires. And I'm Inez Stedman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, we've got four interesting and diverse topics, as always, for this week. Emily is going to kick us off by talking about the Pentagon leaks. I'll be talking about the FBI's efforts to infiltrate the Catholic Church in America. Inez will talk about the Tennessee Three. And last but not least, Delano will talk to us a little bit about Democrats' queering of Black men. With that, let's turn over to Emily. The great transition to me, of course. Uh, no, the leaked documents from the Pentagon continue to be a huge story. Um, they obviously first started showing up on Discord. Um, and the United States government seems to be, well, that seems to be, they are suggesting this is Russian uh, propaganda. This is a leak from Russia to um, disrupt American politics once again. Uh, it's, you know, obviously something we've, we've heard about many times from the national security community. They are panicking. Um, John Kirby himself uh, at the White House briefings have, has said that this is absolutely a concern. Um, reports from inside the Pentagon and the national security community say that they're they're up in they're, they're in some unrest um, about this, uh, about the fact that these documents that seem to be highly, highly classified have leaked. Uh, my colleagues over at Breaking Points, Crystal and Sager, have done some great reporting on what's in the documents and, uh, you know, a lot of it has been authenticated. The government does say that a lot of this is accurate. Um, that's basically the implication of their freakout is that the, these are real documents. Um, Ukraine has said it's sort of a mixed bag of what's true and what's false, but there are some big takeaways. I'm curious what your takeaways are. One, one, one takeaway is that uh, it's something The Intercept had reported a little bit in the lead up to this leak um, over the last year or so, but that uh, special forces, American special forces are on the ground in Ukraine. Um, so technically there are are boots on the ground, not a, obviously a, a huge contingent, but there are some special forces on the ground in Ukraine. We probably could have guessed that, predicted it, and there was reporting already out there on that. Uh, this confirms it in some additional detail. Also, uh, that China believes any Ukrainian attacks with NATO support deep inside Ukraine, or deep inside Russia, I'm sorry, would be something of a red line for them now that that's public um, from these leaked documents that definitely changes the state of the war. Um, there's, you know, maybe it was different when that information was behind closed doors, but now that it's actually there, um, it, it definitely changes, I think, uh, both countries' calculus. There's also an, an open question of how these documents leaked. Is there an incredible vulnerability in the United States' ability um, to keep this information safe online in the cloud? Is there a leaker um, that's, you know, working with the Russian government or another government that wishes to do us harm. These documents just raise a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. Um, obviously, Ukraine had been in the past even sensitive about sharing information with us. Uh, some of our people, they knew more about Russia's, Russia's battle plans than Ukraine's at different points during the war. Um, this obviously will affect that relationship going forward, the intelligence sharing information going forward. It will it will affect our relationships with other countries. Um, I think there's even stuff about like Egypt and Serbia 
in these leaks, which are continuing to come out. So on that note, oh, South Korea, I'm even forgetting that. Uh, there's just, there's so much that's coming out of this, which is why I want to turn it open to the group. Like I said, I think one of, uh, I just named probably my two biggest takeaways. I think the China stuff is huge, um, but let me turn it over to you guys. What are your big takeaways from uh, the, the leaked documents that we continue to learn more and more about every single day? Yeah, I think uh, my my top line takeaway is it's ridiculous that the way that this is not being reported on by legacy media, this is a huge deal. There is a lot of really important stuff that I think we're still sifting out. And, and I echo Emily's um, kudos to Crystal and Sagar at Breaking Points for going through some of this stuff in a way that you would expect, for example, the New York Times or the Washington Post to do it, and they haven't. Um, there, there's some other additional really important stuff um, in, in addition to what Emily mentioned. Uh, there's the um, potential downing of a plane in Belarus, uh, which is outside the boundaries of Ukraine. Um, this is obviously an extension. I mean, some, somewhat natural. We saw, for example, like the fact that a Ukrainian missile landed on the other side of the Polish border. If that had been a Russian missile, you know, there's a very, very um, volatile situation. It's, it's a full out war. Uh, but these are the sort of things that are, are are really important, right? So there was an incursion into Belarus. There was a plane down there. And furthermore, it's not really clear that all Ukrainian forces are um, fully directed under the, the government in Kyiv as well. Like that there, there are some, whether intentional or um, like intentional distancing uh, and, and sort of possible deniability or whether there there is actually a problem with sort of rogue units and so on. Uh, because that appears to have not been ordered from Kiev, at least in in these documents, to suggest our intelligence services this, think that it was not ordered by um, directly from uh, the government. And then uh, the the red line uh, for China in terms of of attacks, uh, it really clarifies the whole conversation, which at the time to me sounded a little bit silly about the difference between offensive and defensive weapons. Right? How many uh, you know kilometer range this this type of missile defense versus this type of missile defense? Right. Um, it really clarifies, I think, that conversation, the information that's in these documents um, and why that's so important. That It's because our intelligence services, uh, and whether this is true or not, it's hard to say, but our intelligence services appear to believe that this would be a red line for China's involvement or support of, of Russia in this war. Um, I think the least reliable stuff uh, that, that has already been disputed and, and the Pentagon keeps pointing back to this and hoping the rest of this conversation will go away. Um, the least reliable stuff in here is the uh, the, the um, casualties on both sides. We know that, that those numbers were doctored. There are two separate sets of the documents that appeared on um, on Discord with different numbers and, and likely doctored by, by, by the Russians. Um, so we're, we're not clear on, on the corrections of those numbers and what kind of casualties are actually incurring. But um, if, if the original numbers uh, as opposed to the doctored ones, if those are true, uh, this is a, this is a very high casualty war for Russia, um, also for Ukraine that can't replace its troops as easily. And Russia is a bigger country and um, is able to to replace and, and conscript. Uh, what what that does to the standing of Putin's government in Russia is is again an open question. But um, that's I know that's a bit of a, a blast of different things. But that's that's where we're seeing all of these actually. Each one of these stories could have been a major headline. Um, and and we're not seeing those headlines uh so it's a very very big reversal let's say in the pentagon papers days for, for the new york times um not not to cover this in a serious way um finally just a, a note that this got leaked on discord i know that's a whole conversation in itself i feel like uh the fighting a war uh in the age of social media um and we've already seen sort of 
the the official Russian and Ukraine accounts go to war uh, against each other on Twitter as well with like memes, right? Um, and that's as surreal as that is. Uh, major Pentagon paper level documents about NATO war plans leaking on Discord is an additional sort of layer of our brave new world, I think, worth worth considering and thinking about. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be brief. I think there are obviously multiple levels to this story. One, uh, one is the substance and the merits of the materials that have leaked out. And then another is the notion, the nature of the leak itself, what the motive was, you know, do we have vulnerabilities, substantial vulnerabilities, which I assume we do, as Emily raised, the fact that there's been reporting that hundreds, if not thousands of people may have had access to many of these documents previously. Uh, also, let's note, Byron York wrote a short piece worth taking a look at where he essentially argues that not all leaks are created equal, apparently, from the national security and intelligence apparatus. And I think it's instructive to note that uh, spokesperson, I believe for NSC, but he's been spokesperson for many different agencies uh, in recent years, John Kirby essentially said to the media, don't report on this. And you'll note that administration officials, unnamed officials in the Pentagon and that administration officials are furious about the notion of a leaker here and that they're going to scour to the ends of the earth to try to find who the leaker was. Very telling that reaction, which I think speaks to the veracity of at least a substantial percentage of the documents. They wouldn't want to crush the leaker if they weren't fearful of the actual merits of the documents themselves. I'm also keen to see as time goes on, and then we can do a retrospective, the assessments that were made by our forces, how accurate were they about what was actually going on in the various countries that are covered in these materials? Obviously, the materials themselves have caused substantial crises in several places. South Korea was noted as one. In Israel as well, there was the assertion, the assessment by U.S. officials that the Mossad was actually encouraging the protests uh, against Netanyahu and those who were supporters of judicial reform there, which caused Netanyahu to come out and, and his office to come out and say that this was mendacious and a lie, etc. So obviously, there are wide-ranging implications and reverberations from these documents. It's obviously a substantial leak on the merits. And again, I go back to the idea that the administration wants to clamp down on it and is going to pursue this leaker to the ends of the earth, in contrast with, say, the lack of outrage over, let's say, the Dobbs leaker, for example, speaks volumes about the substance and the merits of the documents and what they don't want us to know about what's contained on them, which means we obviously should be looking at them very deeply, thoroughly, and seriously. Yeah, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, I, I thought the same thing, Ben, in terms of how we handled the Dobbs leak. Um, I still don't think anyone has been identified as the actual leaker, so I I don't have any uh, any uh, sense that that this one will end any differently. Um, but one of the things is is the sort of the intelligence um, focus on China. And I, th I just think it just shows that China's influence on the world stage just continues to grow. Um, the, the deal that they recently reached, you know, with Russia to solidify co cooperation, um, the, the, the recent deal with Brazil to trade those two countries in their own currency and remove the U.S. dollars the intermediary, and then the deal that they brokered between the Saudis and the Iranians. So uh, oftentimes I feel like the administration tries to 
at times downplay the China threat. I think they're much uh, more interested in going after Russia publicly um, and saying that Russia is the real threat um, to you know our our global supremacy. But it is clear that they they are concerned about um, China and its growing role um, on the world stage. Well, from downplaying the China threat to the real threat as the administration perceives it, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, this recent effort by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Weaponization, a topic that I frequently return to, and its effort to engage in oversight regarding the targeting by the FBI of Catholics in America. So, Many will note and recall that there was a document that leaked back in January from FBI's Richmond field office, uh, the document with this inglorious title, Interest of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremists in Radical Traditionalist Catholic Ideology Almost Certainly Presents New Mitigation Opportunities. Uh, and it sounds, I guess, relatively anodyne until you get into actually the substance of the document which suggests essentially that religious Catholics in America may be domestic terrorists, uh, citing of all sources the Southern Poverty Law Center to justify that perspective. So the House Weaponization Committee reached out to the FBI a couple of times to try to obtain further information about the basis for this document, who created it, can we have more detail about uh, some of the allegations and claims that were made in it and the like. And the Weaponization Committee was stonewalled a couple of times. Ultimately, it did receive a document, which it noted was substandard and highly redacted, but still contained some major takeaways. And now we've learned about some of those takeaways in a letter that the Weaponization Subcommittee penned to FBI Director Ray subpoenaing him. And in that document, they lay out some of the findings that they have from, again, the heavily redacted materials that the FBI has hesitantly provided which include the following takeaways. First, that the FBI, relying on information from at least one source, sought to use local religious organizations as, quote unquote, new avenues for tripwire and source development. They had an outreach plan aimed at sensitizing congregation to warning signs of radicalization and enlisting their assistance to serve as suspicious activity tripwires, I'm quoting directly here. And, and they called for contacting this plan called for contacting mainline Catholic parishes and the local diocesan leadership. The FBI also indicated it was interested in, quote unquote, leveraging existing resources and developing new sources for reporting suspicious activities. We also found out that two senior intelligence analysts signed off on this, as did a senior counsel. And since, again, the FBI is stonewalled to this point, besides this, again, substandard 18-page document that they produced, uh, FBI Director Ray is being subpoenaed. And I think we need to put this in its broader context, a context which we frequently return to of here you have the FBI seeking out informants within the Catholic Church, working under the assumption that there are domestic violent extremists lurking because they actually happen to be faithful, apparently, on the authority of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which, as we've noted before, itself, at least one of its employees is, is under investigation for domestic terrorism. Set that aside for a moment. But I think this raises, again, what I would call the big chill over the First Amendment that now exists in this country, where the authorities of the state are essentially terrorizing those who dissent from the state's orthodoxy by claiming they are terrorists. 
and threatening to sick the full power of the federal government on them. So now Americans have to look over their shoulders in houses of worship. And by the way, we don't know if it's just in Richmond and just Catholic churches, but it could be any of a number of, it could be synagogues, it could be other churches, it could be mosques, it could be a whole slew of houses of worship here. Parents, obviously critical of draconian COVID policies and the like, were targeted as domestic terrorists, as the Weaponization Subcommittee has highlighted. You have memesters, as we've noted, like Douglas Mackey getting convicted for thought crimes of memeing against the wrong candidate. Protesters, obviously, as recent rulings or opinions, rather, have been sh shown. Protesters, J6 protesters, are getting the book thrown at them with charges never applied before in terms of obstructing an official proceeding. And then, of course, you have the indictment of a former president and leading presidential candidate now. So a, a big picture takeaway, I would say, is that the, I think in practice, the First Amendment is effectively dead in this country. And mm -hmm. we can't even begin to fathom what the long-term consequences of that are. But short-term, I think it's a massive chill over speech. People will not organize and protest peacefully even if they hold the wrong views, they will be afraid of expressing their dissenting views in a whole slew of domains and on a whole slew of issues, precisely because dissent has now been criminalized. And I think this is just one more illustration of it. Uh, I'm curious what your all take is on you know, the FBI's targeting of Catholics and then more broadly the context in which we see it taking place. So I, I, I can jump in. So one of the things that obviously is clear is that for Americans with traditional religious views, um, this administration sees them as a threat. Um, I, from the memo that I saw, I don't I don't know that I saw a particular um, area of thought, so to speak, that that the administration was on the lookout for. But certainly, I, I would argue that the most um, ascendant spiritual force in the country today. And spiritual and political force is is you know what I sometimes refer to as the pride power movement. Um, so if you have parents that want to well one um, churches or other houses of worship that want to teach uh, you know traditional views on on marriage and family, obviously those those institutions are going to come under scrutiny. Uh, I think eventually this will extend to to families that want to homeschool. Um, according to their their own values, whether religious or traditional values, um, and and I, th I also think this is an example of how we've lost a common language. Um, there was a time that if you heard the term domestic terrorism, and and certainly if you heard it in connection with the SPLC, uh, you you would you know a chill would go down your spine. But um, all of these institutions have lost credibility over over the last number of years, and now we don't even know what domestic terrorism. Uh, means we we know the administration does not think it means, for instance, you know, crisis pregnancy centers that are attacked um, for providing you know resources to to moms in need, um, but it it seems like it means you know families or parents that show up at school board meetings uh, to protest the types of things that their children are learning in school. So th this is all you know a complete inversion um, in terms of our, our you know moral ethics and and to your point, Ben. Uh, I think I think the point is to chill speech in these houses of of worship, and and I'll I'll say this: this is two things really quick. One, to be a little ecumenical, when I hear about things like this, I think of people like David French, who lend credibility and moral authority to the left 
when when he writes that the next insurrectionist is in some um, small Pentecostal denomination in Southwest Indiana, because there are people there who who have questions about the 2020 election. Um, and and then I also know personally someone who's very close to me, um, whose employer this person is is in addition to having a full time job, this person is a pastor. His employer, um, he's public. He works in the public sector. Reached out to him um, and said he should be careful about the things he teaches as it relates to uh, sex, sexuality, and marriage. Um, I, someone must have seen one of his messages around the family, uh, and and his employer said, "Hey, just just be careful about that." So I think the point is to chill speech um, because this this movement um, will will not tolerate. Um, any rival gods, so to speak. And, and I think that's clear from the actions of this administration. One thing I would say on that point, just really quickly, is we look back on how previous intelligence agencies infiltrated um, groups like the, uh, let's say, like, like Martin Luther King's groups or uh, like the Nation of Islam in years past as a really shameful moment in American history. And uh, what we're seeing with the Catholic Church is not yet on par with that. It was a pretty massive operation uh, to combat socialism and Marxism and communism that J. Edgar Hoover had undertaken um, it, over the years. Um, but we look back on that as a really, really shameful thing. And it's just fascinating now that it's Catholic parishes mm. uh, being intentionally infiltrated that MSNBC, which is full of spooks, um, is like every day, it's just panels of intelligence people. They cut to, you know, Andy McCabe or whomever else on CNN and MSNBC um, has has absolutely no concern about that whatsoever. And I think it's good that conservatives now look back on a lot of that, look back on uh, how the CIA appears to have like infiltrated Charles Manson's circles and all of the like the hippie circles. By the way, even spied on Barry Goldwater's campaign at the direction of Lyndon Johnson, um, something that a lot of people forget about. Uh, we look back on that as a really bad thing. We look back on the church committee as a really good thing. But in the absence of media curiosity and skepticism about this, because they're now team blue no matter who, basically, um, this is going to flourish once again um, in the darkness. Because remember, democracy dies in darkness. Um, in the darkness of all of this, it's, it's going to start happening again because they get zero media pushback. They get cheerleading when they do it to Catholic parishes now because the media thinks, hey, why not? It's, it sounds like it sounds right. Must be a bunch of white nationalists in there. Um, not much to add to this discussion, honestly, just two really quick points. Um, one, you don't have to reach back uh, to J. Edgar Hoover to talk about this infiltration. I think the obvious, um, although I think that's instructive, but uh, the, the obvious comparison here is the fact that we found out that the Proud Boys are apparently like half feds right um that they, even the in the courtroom um in some of these these trials you're having the judge joking um about and, and other witnesses joking about like how many of the witnesses are informants for the feds right um so and of course the whitmer plot and, and all of that was also um you know predominantly feds so I, I i think it's sad but i think people actually understand this on the right i think the the fact that there was I, you know, half a mile from my house, uh, there was no riot. And I said this last week, there was not even any like vociferous protests, really. Um, it was more like a carnival atmosphere and not very many people 
you as much as you would think like arresting a president would bring i think people understand actually sadly and correctly that uh their right to peacefully protest is um that, that they're risking uh political prosecution by exercising that right um so it, it, sadly i think people understand that but I, I think it's good that they do understand it because we don't want to see um you know more a repeat of what's happened to some of these january 6 defendants um the the second brief point is is simply to bring up this really fascinating uh poll uh, from pew um that came out in late march and the amazing reversal and i would really like to see what these numbers would have looked like 20 years ago um but but basically on the fbi the cia and the department of homeland security you've seen a huge flip whereas now they're very popular with democrats for example the fbi 65 percent of democrats have a favorable view of the fbi um, versus 38 percent of republicans well 53 percent of Repu uh, 53 percent of republicans um have an unfavorable view of the fbi right and same thing on the cia you've seen these numbers i would imagine i can only imagine that if you had taken this poll 10 years ago you would have seen the exact opposite so it's, it's just it, it's, it's a further confirmation that the american people actually do understand um especially people on the right they do understand that these agencies are are um have been weaponized against them they, they have internalized that truth well on that note let's transition back to inez to talk about the good insurrectionists <laughs> yeah that's right um we have we have uh, you know we really need to i mean this is old news for this crowd we know that there's a double standard but um it, it became very very obvious in the last week with the reaction or, around what happened in the tennessee house uh, the so-called tennessee three um and, and i want to start off uh, my segment by saying very briefly what actually happened because it's truly impressive um from a top line perspective it's truly impressive that the way the narrative is being run i'm almost impressed with uh it's just obviously it's a bunch of lies but i'm impressed with the fact that we are talking now about the tendency three in context of this so let's review what has actually happened we have an, a, a almost certainly ideologically motivated killer we still haven't seen the manifesto who is trans um or, or rather like has pronouns and was was uh, identified as he him i mean some of these things are unclear but we had this woman come and shoot up a christian school kill three christian children three more adults at the school right we had this this ter terrible tragic incident and then um in response we have democrats three democrats in the tennessee house leading a mob onto the house floor in tennessee and stopping all business now i thought that this was beyond the pale and insurrection, right? Um, there, there are videos of of these, um, of, of the mob pushing back and forth with police officers. I mean, in, in in many respects, quite similar to the videos that we saw out of January 6th, right? But they they stopped all business um, of, of, of the house and were on, the house was unable to vote on, on a series of, of things. Um, after which these lawmakers, two out of three of them were expelled. Now, they, one has already been reappointed back. The other one likely will be uh, reappointed back into their positions and once they are reappointed once they're reseated they cannot be expelled for the same offense a second time um so th th functionally this didn't really do much to them but this whole uh chain of events is being called undemocratic and an assault on democracy by the left and the media so starting with this this um sort of ideologically you know uh motivated almost certainly ideologically motivated attack against christian a christian school and christian children somehow through the pipeline of our media on the other end comes it's undemocratic to expel uh these these tennessee lawmakers for halting 
business by leading a mob onto the house floor. They are the real victims here. Um, so I think it's just a remarkable chain of events and really show demonstrates the the absolute stranglehold that the leftist narrative has on legacy media on, and on how we talk about incidents in this country. Um, uh, just a couple more notes before I kick it out to everybody to discuss. I know we're going to do a deeper dive in the next section on some of these lawmakers, um, but Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson, there's also an al allegation of racism here um, that Gloria Johnson was not expelled while these two, um, the other two, Jones and Pearson, who are Black, uh, they were. Of course, this is uh, incredibly disingenuous on her part, uh, on, on um, Johnson's part, Gloria Johnson's part, because during the expulsion vote, her lawyer argued, she brought a lawyer for the expulsion vote, and her lawyer argued that her actions were substantively different and that she could be differentiated from the other two lawmakers because she didn't grab a bullhorn, she didn't yell at anybody's face, and therefore she didn't deserve the same sanction. Um, and then she turned around literally hours later, went on CNN and said, I, was, I wasn't expelled because I'm a white woman. That's why. Uh, when she had actually just hours earlier argued that her ba behavior substantively differed from the behavior of her colleagues and therefore she shouldn't be expelled so um really talking out of both sides of her mouth on that one the three votes why didn't i hear that in the media <laughs> yes, the first you answer your I mean, no, no no seriously right <laughs> yeah um that's not being reported on each one of these votes um it was different by the way meaning that actually it seems like the lawmakers who took those votes actually reviewed the specific actions separately of each one of these three people because they were three votes and i can't remember which one um if it was jones or pearson who had uh, a very like a very high solid vote a pure um and, and the threshold here was two-thirds right 66 um out of the 99 people in the in the legislature but the votes varied from like 72 to 65 just under the threshold and that was johnson's right so there were multiple um sort of differences between each one of them and that indicates to me that as one would expect their colleagues when voting on expulsion took into account the specific actions of each one of these individuals and didn't just vote on a block and that's why you, you got three different votes one of which was just one short shy one vote shy um of, of expulsion which again um just on a personal level I, I think it's it's pretty hilarious that this this one republican because the republicans are the uh, have the majority this one Republican decided to, to be very, very fair and not to vote for the expulsion of Gloria Johnson, only to be called a racist for doing so uh, several hours later on CNN. Um, but yeah, so that, just throw that that all out to, to you guys. How did we get to talking about this uh, as an undemocratic racist attack um, rather than talking about, one, the underlying facts of, of the actual tragedy in this case and the murder? Uh, and then two, you know, the, the the whiplash speed reversal on whether or not it's okay to storm the House floor with a mob and a bullhorn and grind legislative uh, procedure to a halt. So throwing that out for to anyone. Well, let me just comment first that it, it you're you're right to highlight the fact that actually the Tennesseans were voting on the merits, not on the basis of race. But of course, the very first headlines you saw about this were two black Tennessean representatives expelled and the white one not expelled. That was the story. So there's so many different layers here in the warped identitarian mindset that you can look at for how they've propagandized over this. But the very fact that we're talking about it, I think, demonstrates 
how powerful the campaign of obfuscation is over the fact that actually there is a huge backlash against the transgender agenda broadly in this country. And that, of course, Christians were victims of a presumably transgender, as we all understand it, transgender shooter, and that it was pointed, that it was on that basis. But the administration, the presidential administration, almost immediately went into, we have to defend the trans community, which is under attack. Mm. So the trans community is the real victims here, not Christians who are attacked and not Americans who see their kids being indoctrinated in a radical gender agenda that we pay for with our own tax dollars, even though we reject it, which itself constitutes part of a broader kind of woke anti-religion that's being imposed in the classroom. But then, of course, obviously, you have the racial layer in this as well. I think the fact that we're talking about this story and that these legislators have been martyred tells you all you need to know about how shrewd they are about changing the narrative and transforming it to the point where you have a shooter shoots up a school and kills people, but the victims are legislators who actually go out and lead a mob and a riot. That is where we are now. Uh, it's also worth noting, again, the manifesto we still haven't seen. In every other instance, when the manifesto serves the political agenda of those in power, it comes out immediately, but not in this case. And why? Because it would undermine their political agenda. It's so obvious for all to see. Uh, worth noting, though, that they are really going to try to milk this for all they've got. Eric Holder and others are representing, I believe, representatives Pearson and Jones at a minimum. And you know that when Eric Holder is there and he's going after the Tennessee legislator, that means they take this very seriously. Let's also note that Barack Obama himself also weighed in at a minimum via a tweet on this. So they see this as a massive opportunity to galvanize their base and to try to spin this around from radical trans agenda and the fact that seemingly those who are transitioning at times have lashed out in incredibly violent ways and against Christians. And we're not allowed to talk about that or look into it, but rather now this is about race. That is how shrewd they are and frankly, how evil they are in trying to leverage and exploit any and every event they can to their political benefit. I'm just going to jump in because Delano's leading the next segment that sort of will transition really seamlessly uh, from what I imagine has to say on this one. I will just really quickly say um, we are a tragically unserious people because we are not even talking about the legislation in question that was being mm -hmm. protested. They have no they, these the Tennessee three. I don't even want to call them that are so they lack courage to the point where they cannot actually deal with gun violence. And yet our culture is heralding them as courageous for doing exactly the type of nonsense that gets you media coverage. The bill in question, um, it, it, like they actually don't have a plan to do anything about gun violence. Like they have no plan. They have no argument that actually shows what they were doing prevented mass shootings or prevented gun violence, period. Their position on this is nonsense and incoherent. Um, and yet, and, and the everything they did is the opposite of courage. They did exactly what our culture rewards and popularizes um, because elites like it. Uh, they played right into the hands of popular culture and elites all while uh, doing nothing on the substance of the issue. And that's what gets you cultural cash right now. That's what gets you leg regular cash right now. So on that, I'll, I'll toss it over to you, Delano. Sure. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to focus in on one member of the so-called Tennessee Three, Justin Pearson, but I'll say this really quickly. Um, 
I think it's worth considering whether the GOP made a, a strategic error here. Um, I think, you know, public censure, public rebuke would have been fine. Um, but once they chose to expel these individuals, um, they made them into martyrs. And and now we are going to hear about them. We'll, we'll, we'll see how, how long the flame lasts. Um, but they certainly have milked it at least for the last, you know, five days or so. And, and one of the people, particularly uh, Justin Pearson, um, has done a, a, an extraordinary job in getting himself placed in all different types of uh, media outlets. And uh, Pearson delivered a quote-unquote sermon um, on Easter Sunday in, in Memphis. Uh, he opened his sermon with a prayer to Mother God. So you can you can get a sense of where things would go from there. And, and then he went on to um, tie the, the, the resurrection um, of, of Christ to his political agenda. He mentioned you know, healthcare for quote unquote trans kids. Uh, he, he mentioned transgenderism at least two or three times in the sermon, just from the clips that I've seen uh, from from the Twitter account woke preacher clips, and it it made me it clarified his role in this entire thing, um, because Justin Pearson is the perfect avatar for the role that specifically black men are playing in in this season in this moment for what the left sees as its newest civil rights uh, campaign. Um, many people will be familiar with, you know, those iconic signs from the civil rights era, uh, you know, where black men wore, you know, like the sandwich board and it said, I am a man. Um, these were signs that, that they wore during the 1968 uh, sanitation strike in Memphis, actually, where, where Justin Pearson represents Memphis. And now some of the same men, right, who who would who were wearing those signs, right? Their sort of political descendants can't even answer the question, "What is a woman?" Um, and and my point is fairly simple: uh, that black men who see themselves as champions of civil rights have gone from fighting against the color line uh, to trying to demolish the sex binary, um, and they were leaders in the in the old civil rights movement, and now they are obedient followers in the trans cult. And I think the left. Has, has been steadily queering them. And that's the term that I use in a piece that I have out for The Blaze. Um, and, and that's how you get, for instance, you know, Professor Mark Lamont Hill, who's who's been in, you know, public spotlight media personality for over a decade, uh, standing on his claim that men can get pregnant. That's how you get the NAACP awarded, giving its highest honor to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union for their advocacy of their quote unquote trans son. It's a biological male who they say is now a girl. Um, that is how you get Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, the largest city in the country, who sends out an official statement last June saying that uh, drag queens are an essential part of the education process in New York City. All right. So obviously drag is like the gateway drug drug to the, to the entire trans uh, movement. Um, and and these, these men are being used um, and the left loves them because they lend a sense of cultural capital as well as moral authority um, to this particular movement. It allows the left to say, look, the NAACP is on is on our side and it allows the NAACP to say, here we are yet again on the right side of, of history. So um, I, I, I see this happening in real time. And it's not just the big name people. I, I, I know educators who, who I follow, some of them that I know personally, who have adopted the language of uh, sex and gender being separate, um, have adopted all of the sort of the messaging, the rhetoric, the posters, the signs, 
of the LGBT movement in the classrooms. Uh, and, and these are the people who are shaping the minds of tomorrow. Um, and, and they are lending, again, their, their credibility to this particular movement. So I, I think it's something that's worth um, discussing, certainly worth you know, me discussing, because I, I understand, and this is the last part I'll say about it, I kick it open to the group. If you are a Black man today, and you want, and you are seeking elected office, you're seeking to uh, accumulate or keep your cultural capital, um, you, you're seeking to, to influence um, politics or social norms in any way, shape, or form, and you're doing that from a left of center position, you must submit to this cult. There's no other way around it, um, at least publicly. Now, I'm in favor of asking these people when they you know, sign up for uh, Tinder, whether they, they check the box you know, saying that uh, we, I, I want women and plus trans women, because then that, that'll really put to the test whether they believe what it is that they say. But if, if you are going for elected office anywhere across this country, um, as, as any man, but particularly, as I said, for black men, because they they get to lay claim to this historical legacy, um, you you must submit and obey. And I think that is something that's worth discussing. So I'll throw it up into the group for comment. Inez, didn't you uh, find something this week on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, a follower sent that to me. Shout out to my anonymous Twitter follower who sent that video of, of Pearson to me. And I sent it to... Uh, to Peachy Keenan and some other folks, and now it's all over the internet. So, um, no, I I think Mike Gonzalez has written really well about this phenomenon, um, which which is like an attempt to sort of replicate and uh, transform the specific history and story of Black Americans and apply it to a sort of endlessly expansive list mm. of new victims, right? Where uh, he talks about in the racial context and even if the creation of of the so-called racial groups, each one beyond the specific category of Black Americans, being very dubious as to whether this is actually a racial group. Like Hispanics, for example, are united by a language, but have radically different, you know, somebody from Cuba is not at all like, you know, it shares some elements of language and culture, but like has very different story in America from, for example, a Mexican family where the border legitimately crossed them and they've been in the same place uh, in, in <laughs> you know, in Texas for the last several hundred years. Like these are radically different stories, but they're all lumped together into this group Hispanic. Um, same thing with AAPI, right? AAPI, uh, it was Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders or something. Mm -hmm. um, again, like somebody from Malaysia or from the Philippines is going to have a radically different background than someone from Japan and how they got to the United States and ended up here. I mean, uh, applying this 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 sort of playbook even to, to immigrant groups in itself is is sort of a totally, um, in, in a way, like completely baseless. But I, I think it speaks to the fact that the left really does think that this specific story of Black Americans has, has obviously um, been sort of the the shame and the Achilles heel of this country um, from the beginning and, and our specific, like very tangible history together in this country, um, Black Americans being the only the only people who did not voluntarily, did, whose ancestors did not voluntarily uh, come to the United States and, and having slavery um, in, in, when we birthed this republic. And I'm by no means, of course, a 1619 kind of uh, adherent. But I do think that, that that specific history is very powerful. And that's why it has become the playbook of the left applying to endlessly 
further and further cases from it, right? We start out with Hispanics as as sort of a category, a racial category, similar, trying to apply uh, the same political playbook as Black Americans. And then you end up now in a position where it, the same playbook is attempting to be used for trans people, right? And I think that it is a recognition that that story still resonates with Americans because it is like a, a deeply, like deeply felled on, on all sides. Like we feel that as part of our history. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's such a tool for the left. But I, I think we just have to call it out for, for what it is, which is it's an attempt to launder essentially the, the feelings of Americans with regard to their story jointly on this specific issue an attempt to launder that playbook onto increasingly further and further um, away groups of quote unquote victims, many of whom are, are completely not, uh, ha have no historical claim to victimhood at all. And, you know, it's the, the arc of Pearson that uh, you, you highlight, and as I think is a really fascinating one where he's at Bowdoin, and as Peachy Keenan points out, you know, what happened to the the blue blazer donning guy in search of the radical center um, mm. that you see in those Bowdoin videos, um, who is just now completely play acting a part as uh, Hans Feeney wrote for the Federalist a couple of years ago in different circumstances, it looks like Selma envy. Um, and that's hey, I want to so... lay claim to that, by the way, that was my phrase. I coined it in high school. <laughs> you guys, oh, that's that's interesting. <laughs> For, um, for by the but, way, as applied to white female activists in Palo Alto, I said they have <laughs> Selma envy. They wish it was 1964 and they were getting sprayed uh, by Bull Connor and, and and having dogs set on them. But in any case, uh, sorry, I have to lay blame to that because I think it's like one of my better coinages. So I'm <laughs> I'm staking out my intellectual I, property here. It's it's an interesting case study because Hans would have no way of knowing what you said in a high school classroom in Palo Alto in the aughts. <laughs> Yet he in Missouri um, lands on the same term because it's in like, oh, well, actually, maybe he, he heard you say it before. I don't, I have no idea how these things happen. Uh, but the point is, I actually think it's more than just, you know, the white activist. I think on the left, I think it's like everybody. I think we are all starved for meaning and purpose. And mm. we have a really, we have an example in very recent American history of people who found meaning and purpose in something that was virtuous and righteous. And uh, that is very energizing and that is very appealing and attractive to people. And so I, it, it's, it's very easy. Um, to get caught up in the play acting, but there's absolutely no substance there. And that continues to be the case when you look at the left's activist class, they don't know what they're doing. It reminds me of when Jack Dorsey donated like some stupid amount of money to, uh, I think it was the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation. Um, mm. And you're like, well, what is a capitalist doing? Donating to a group that on its website openly said mm. they were Marxists. Uh, it, it makes zero sense. They don't actually, none of the capitalists who gave that money to Marxist groups um, were Marxists or wanted the cause of Marxism to succeed in the United States, maybe cultural Marxism, but that's mm. where cultural Marxism is successful because it allows people to signal without substance. Um, it allows people to uh, you know, say, hey, this is a fashionable, uh, queering something is a fashionable, um, queering, let's queer feminism. Let's queer the NFL. Like it's a, it's fashionable, but ultimately um, meaningless, um, except for the fact that it, it's meaningless because you don't actually support the Marxism part of it. 
Mm. Right. Like it, you're not on board with Patrice colors and uh, the, the cause you're on board with the signal. You, if someone explained to you where they wanted to take the queering of the NFL or anything else, somebody like actually laid that out. Um, the vast majority of people who were posting the black boxes on their Instagram would be like, Oh, hell no, hell no. Um, but because we're so starved for me and purpose, we latch onto things that are superficially in vogue and fashionable. And it's built up this entire like uh, culture of incentives that are totally skewed and messed up uh, and skewed away from substance, which really sucks. And again, it's just tragically unserious. I'll, I'll be real brief here. Um, I found the videos of Representative Pearson to be unbelievable from his time in college versus his time today. What a radical transformation he's had, which points to, of course, the fraudulence of Pearson, which is illustrative of the broader fraudulence of this entire controversy and the way the left always contrives and uses these sorts of cases to ram home their narrative. Uh, but it's totally shameful. Uh, mere mortals would be embarrassed about such conduct, just like when Hillary Clinton speaks in a certain draw or AOC <laughs> or any other figure. It's pathetic. I mean, this is what politicians do, but it's pathetic. It's disgraceful. Um, it also warps, of course, in trying to invoke this mantle, which actually you know, has credence and merit to it for something that is entirely lacking in merit and credence uh, is also shameful and iconoclastic in the worst kind of way. Um, beyond that, I just say this is intersectionality in action, but it's really tenuous, these coalitions that the progressives have built. I don't like to reduce people to, oh, you know, generally the black community thinks this or the Jewish community th thinks this or whatever, because I don't I like to focus on individuals, not their identity or other characteristics and then paint with a broad brush. But it's obviously true that in traditional black homes in America, the LGBTQIA plus movement does not jibe with their understanding of how to live a meaningful and good life. And that holds, of course, across many races and many ethnicities and uh, religious adherents. So I think, you know, we should try to heighten the contradictions on the progressive side here. Their entire intersectional coalition can easily collapse and we should press it to collapse. Um, with that, I'd open it up for final thoughts. My final thoughts were going to be more about this um, th this kind of cultural Marxism that I I've sometimes don't like that term and other times I do because Marx himself wouldn't really have been a cultural Marxist in the way that we see hmm. um, this question of applying um, the, I guess, the, the Marxist take on um, capital and labor to intersectionality um, as has been mentioned. Um, in fact, Marx observed how the capitalist system sort of flattened people into cogs in a wheel. Um, and there's obviously different interpretations of all of this, um, but it's just, it, it is absolutely true that the, the broader socialist project, the broader communist project, the broader Marxist project is about a global culture. Um, is about a monoculture, is about getting rid of these distinctions that are very human, um, these, these distinctions of, of groups and nations, um, sexes, 
are uh, profoundly human. And, and race is a slightly different question, of course, because there, there is genuinely a measure of social construct to race that doesn't apply uh, to, to sex and what we now call gender. Um, but that, that flattening of cultures to make everything um, just sort of meld into one harmonious, flat utopia, that's seen as sort of a, a necessity. And so when we, we look at this, I don't think right now what we're seeing is a conspiracy. I think it's a lot of people helping, uh, a lot of sort of useful idiots. <clears throat> I think the culture has been sort of, the culture has sort of been stripped of meaning to the mm. point where everyone is primed to be a useful idiot for the elites um, who, who do genuinely have that as their interest, like flattening global culture into something that can just um, fit into this fantasy of a utopia. So again, it's not like Klaus Schwab pulling the strings, um, but it is that you know when, when you are deprived of meaning and purpose, you are more easily used uh, mm. for other people's purposes. And their purposes uh, is absurd and anti-human, um, but gaining momentum every day. Yeah, to, to add to that, um, it's also, of course, there's a, an economic component to what you're saying in terms of, yes, it's, I think the deeper question is the one you've raised about meaning. The secondary question is, of course, whether you have a strong middle class and, and an ability of the average person um, not to, to be in, in the financial position of, of a serf, basically. Um, but but I think you're pointing to why I, I, Anton, uh, Mike Anton has a great piece at Compact, um, specifically with regard to the Great Reset, but it could apply to any number of, of sort of left-wing projects on this and why it's not really Marxism, but then he goes on to say in what ways they're similar. I think we apply the term because we associate bad things rightly <laughs> with with socialism or marxism but um sometimes i fear uh, and i think anton does a good job of pointing this out that using that label i'm fine with sort of throwing it around on on the internet the way that groomer is thrown around um but i worry that using that label will not produce the best action forward on how to fight it because as you say this is like something where the biggest company, uh, multinational corporations in the world are involved in, and, and there are capitalist structures involved um, in, in the promulgation of these ideas. So when we call it Marxism, I feel, I fear that sometimes we, you know, we're pointing people towards a solution that actually won't work for the structure of what we're actually facing, right? Um, that it needs to be fought in the same way that like Marxist communism is fought. And that I think is very much not true. Um, what I wanted to bring up for my final point is, I think, very related to what Emily has brought up about meaning. Um, I think we, we it would be worth at some point, this is too short a venue to do it, to have a real conversation about why it is that school shootings um, mm -hmm. have become such a feature of American life. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't think there actually is uh, a cheap solution. Of course, the left wants their cheap solution is gun control. But America has always had uh, guns and as late as the, the 80s and, and even into the early 90s, there were actual rifle clubs at schools and school shootings were vanishingly, vanishingly, vanishingly rare. They just basically did not happen. Right. And to the extent that they happened, it was something very direct, like these two students got, you know, into an altercation and somebody, you know, brought a gun in. The, the, not the kind of um, mass media shooting events that we have had since Columbine and since the 90s. Um, there's a piece I want to recommend on this. Uh, in I am 1776, uh, 
the piece's name is American Devils, and I really recommend. It's really mm. it's long, but it rewards um, it rewards your time, I think, and really makes the case that actually school shootings are the the evolution, the post '90s evolution from cults in the 1970s and sort of uh, Manson style cults in the 1970s, um, in the 80s and 90s, early 90s serial killers and the phenomenon. And then now um, since Columbine, that phenomenon has been uh, school shootings um, to the extent that there are actually any sort of, I, I tend to think these are more like fixes around the edges. Yes, we can we can harden schools. We can make it more difficult to get in and out. Um, and and yes, we can we can have you know armed armed police, um, but but fundamentally, uh, and 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 furthermore, actually, I think the most important piece is is actually the media feeds into this in such a direct way. We actually have um, a finding from from uh, the the IZA Institute of Labor Economics saying that um, they 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 can actually measure the copycat effect, the the likelihood of a school shooting. Um, and of mass shootings generally spikes after one is covered mm. extensively in the media. Um, so to the extent that there's something we can do, it's, it is exactly not naming the shooters, not showing their faces, right? And attempt to deny them some of the notoriety that they seek. Uh, but I, I do think it's worth at some point having a longer discussion about this seemingly American phenomenon, because I do think it's tied to some of the, the deeper questions of meaning. You're always going to have people who are already on the edge and falling through cracks and and are psychologically unable um to to deal with certain things and it seems like there are people a tiny percentage of people who faced with some of these larger um, problems of, of sort of the meaning uh, that has leached away from the west uh, those folks responded in the 1970s by joining cults um in in the 90s sometimes by if they had the skill uh by becoming serial killers and now um, we seem to be attracting a new demographic who tip over this edge that specifically um, sort of direct this this meaninglessness into these kinds of, of atrocities and, and these these horrible murders. So, I, I mean, much longer conversation, but I think very much tied to what what Emily said. And I think this this piece is probably the first step at having a real conversation about why this happens in America. Yeah. So. so uh, feel free to go ahead, though. Okay. So, so my my final thoughts really sort of pick up where I left off on on the last segment. Um, I, I think it's useful to understand the era in which we live. Um, and you know, we we've all heard of um, lim limousine liberals. We've heard of latte liberals, right? So, the 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 rich, well-to-do, you know, left of center folks in Georgetown or the Upper West Side that ride through their city and and sort of act in a paternalistic manner towards you know, lower income communities. But I, I would argue that right now we are in the era of Lupron liberalism um, because for the left, the destruction of the sex binary is sort of one of their, if not their foundational sort of principle. Um, and, and you you cannot ascend, um, whether within the party or sort of largely whether it's in, in culture or entertainment, um, in politics, if you do not um, adhere to that belief that that men can become women and women can become men. Um, we used to have terms to describe many of the things that we're talking about now. I can't remember the last time I've heard anyone use the term transvestite, um, but it, it did a fairly good job of covering what it is that we're doing now. 
uh, or the things that we're covering now. So it, it was fairly simple. There were certain men who who dressed up as as women and they tried to, you know, adorn themselves and and people understood that they were still men. And and I think in in many respects, when you have a um when you have a minority group, regardless of ethnic, religious, sexual, I think what the conversation should be about protection, not promotion. Um, if I move to, if I move my family to to Saudi Arabia, I would not demand that every fifth commercial, uh, you know, featured a, a a Christian family. I would not demand that they put up billboards to celebrate Christmas or nativity scenes, because I understand that I'm moving into someone else's country and they have their own public culture and their own values. But but what we're doing right now is, um, you know, we we are trying to, and particularly the left is trying to say that uh, to be a, a good and caring person, you have to uh, promote, quote unquote, gender affirming care, which really is a euphemism and really the exact inverse of what's actually going on. Gender affirming care would actually be uh, counseling and therapy for people who believe they were born in the wrong body. Um, what the left is actually promoting is conversion therapy. Um, it's, it is a, a an attempt to, to change what God has created. Um, and I think you know, again, underneath that is this notion that if you put young people on very powerful drugs, some of the same drugs that are used to sterilize sex offenders, um, that somehow they would find themselves and live happy and fulfilled lives. And I think anyone who follows sort of the arc of of the young man that goes by Jazz Jennings would understand that 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 is a dead end. So um, I'm I'm, you know, I, I understand where we are, and as I said, I. I, I did coin the term drag queen conservatism in honor of David French after some of his criticism of NatCon conference. Um, and I think there's this powerful force, you know, Lupron liberalism on the left, which is going to dictate not just our sort of domestic politics, but off, also our foreign policy uh, as we move forward. So I'll return to my segment and then try to put a bow on this episode. Uh, while just before we went to record today, a story caught my eye, uh, noting that the Biden Justice Department had offered what's been described, I think even charitably, as a sweetheart deal to a transgender vandal who, uh, around the Dobbs opinion, admitted to defacing a Catholic church in Bellevue, Washington with profane graffiti destroyed a statue of the Virgin Mary, and assaulted a church worker and resisted arrest. The DOJ recommended zero jail time. Obviously, by contrast, the Biden administration's DOJ has gone after many pro-lifers. There's an obvious double standard here where one side, of course, faces the most extreme level of justice, which really is injustice. And on the other hand, the aggressors get no punishment whatsoever. In fact, oftentimes they end up getting rewarded. And I think this crystallizes something, you know, the, the notion of anarcho tyranny that's been described, I think is apt, I think does capture what happens where if you're on the, the wrong side of history, you get punished to the nth degree. And if you're on the right side of history, you can do no wrong, essentially, and act with total impunity. But to return to a theme that we've talked about before, and that I think is captured uh, in this kind of FBI attacking, going after and pursuing churchgoers and this double standard obvious of justice here, this injustice here. 
if you worship false gods today, regardless of how disaster it is for society and the maladies that it creates, you are rewarded and you are protected. Mm -hmm. But if by contrast, you believe in real faith, if you believe in the Judeo-Christian basis of this entire country, that's obviously viewed as a threat to the regime because it's it, you're going to have much stronger devotion to that. And it's devotion in something legitimate as opposed to a man-made construct, which is an anti-religion in practice, which is our regime's ruling ideology. So you are excommunicated from society if you are faithful. But on the other hand, if you worship the false gods and you go along with the party line, you'll be protected and rewarded. And I'm not sure how ultimately this conflict resolves itself, but at minimum, we need to understand that we're in it. And I think Americans increasingly do. So on that note, on behalf of Inez, Emily, and Delano, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.